The following is Nature of Business with Chrissy Coughlin in association with GreenBiz.com. Welcome back. This is Nature of Business, and I'm your host, Chrissy Coughlin. And we have with us today Rich Good. He is the Director of Sustainability at Alcatel-Lucent. I'm thrilled to have him on the show. Welcome, Rich. How are you? Uh, thanks, Christy. Nice to be here today. Great. Uh, so you are the Director of Sustainability, and um, according to the little description on the website, on Alcatel's website, you are leading the efforts uh, in setting CO2 emissions targets, creating and implementing climate change programs all across all Alcatel-Lucent operations, and you're integrating sustainability issues into planning, business processes, and decision-making functions of the company. It's quite a lot. Um, talk to us about first about Alcatel-Lucent, and then let's talk a little bit about what you do, more about what you do. Sure, sure. Yeah, that, that definitely is a mouthful. And it is I a mouthful. We can, <laughs> we can simplify that a little bit as we go along. So, so first on Alcatel-Lucent, I, I think uh, I like to say Alcatel-Lucent is one of the bigger companies that most people have never heard of. Right. And I usually have to take our lineage back. I talk about Lucent Technologies. I talk about Bell Labs. Then I usually see most heads in the room shaking. So so our, our history is it comes through AT&T and Bell Labs and Lucent Technologies. And then we merged with Alcatel five years ago, which is sort of our, our French equivalent based in based in Paris. And uh, we merged and become Alcatel-Lucent. We're a fairly large company with 80,000 employees and approximately $20 billion in uh, revenue uh, every year, uh, U.S. dollars revenue. Um, and we really are a quiet company. And we most people don't know that we underpin a lot of people's modern modern lives. Um, do, you, do you like using this telephone that we're on today? Uh, mm. we, we, we invented that. Um, you ever use a mobile phone? We've invented that. Uh, ever send an email and it goes over uh, optical network, we invented the laser. Uh, we even invented the solar panel, so we have some pretty deep credibility in green. And last year marked our seventh Nobel Prize uh, this year in, in physics uh, that we've ever received and, and two Draper Awards for science. So we're really a, a technologically savvy company that, that really has uh, more patents than you can shake a stick at. And I think we're the company that generates more patents than any other U.S. organization um, wow. Uh, around, so so that's a little bit just about our company and about my job. I think that mouthful that you introduced yeah. me with can be simplified. Is uh, I always have to try to bring it down to something that my mom would understand. And I say that my job is to measure, report, and reduce the carbon footprint of our company. And and that that really just breaks up into three nice bite-sized uh, segments because largely I really can't remember more than three things at once. And uh, the the measurement piece, you know, we I think the solid beginning of any carbon footprint of, of any of any good sustainability program is understanding your carbon footprint. That's the measurement piece. We report it publicly, openly, and transparently to uh, Carbon Disclosure Project and Dow Jones Sustainability Index and our own car- uh, our own uh, website and corporate responsibility report. And then the reduce piece is where I have the most fun by engaging with uh, people uh, in in the company to to help them understand their role in helping us to hit our fairly aggressive reduction targets we've set for ourselves. Mm-hmm. So. It's under. It is. It is. The, it is a large company. I didn't realize it was eighty thousand people. What you're doing is almost noble in a way because if it's under the radar and it's kind of behind the scenes, even though you are obviously you've created mobile phones. I mean, you name it. You just named everything that I use almost every day besides the solar panel. Um, but so, what's the impetus then? I mean, I know that companies have to check this stuff out and you need to be knowing what's going on in the sustainability world and at least, you know, to be doing something. But why the buy-in? I think the buy-in really stems from from 
our role in in modern society and where we think society can go in the future, uh, and that's a that's a low carbon economy. Uh, we we really feel the technology and the talent that we have here can really help enable and affect this this sort of low carbon economy of the future. Uh, that that we have unique solutions and and really unique brains with the PhDs and everything else that exists at, at Bell Labs working on this every day. Uh, we've we've gotten so passionate about this. We founded something called Green Touch, and it's uh, greentouch.org. And the stated goal of Green Touch is to improve the efficiency of communications networks by a thousandfold by 2015, have a reference architecture for a thousandfold improvement in efficiency. Mm-hmm. And realizing that despite our being Bell Labs and Alcatelus and a really big company, we decided that this is an important enough effort that we open it up not only to academia, but to our customers and even our competitors. So we have some some representatives, some scientists and, and engineers from other companies that, that we do battle with every day in terms of our customers, but we agree that the opportunity in front of us is far larger than uh, making a sale mm-hmm. and that we really have to put our best minds into this Green Touch Consortia really for the, for the benefit of, of the future. And, and we do think that by doing this, we will benefit as well mm-hmm. uh, by, by helping to develop the product services and technologies needed to help dematerialize and prepare for a low-carbon economy. Let's talk a little bit. I want to start, talk about your, your sustainability office, but this got me thinking about carbon because... I, I find that when I try to explain carbon to people and carbon footprints that they have a really hard time understanding. How do you how do you explain you know, in your role the, the carbon footprint to someone who may not understand? Um, so, so there are a couple of standard ways you can do it. You know, you can talk about equivalency. Well, this is, for instance, uh, I, I often say that the efforts that my office has helped lead here has helped reduce the carbon footprint equivalent to taking 32,000 passenger cars off the road every year. Mm-hmm. And that's something, you know, you, you can, all right, maybe that's all the cars parked at, an, uh, at, at a mid-sized regional airport, 32,000 mm-hmm. cars gone. Okay, that's something to wrap your head around. But really the best example I ever saw is pretty much day one of my sustainability education at Presidio, the grad school out in San Francisco. Uh, Hunter Lovins walked into the room, and she's a sort of a famous sustainability personality. And she walked in the room with a wheelbarrow, and there was a big tarp on the floor, and she dumped out 100 pounds of charcoal briquettes the things you use to blight your mm-hmm. barbecue. Now, those are essentially pure carbon, pure CO2. It, it's really charred wood. It's carbon mm-hmm. sick. It's pure CO2. Mm-hmm. It made a mess. There was <laughs> carbon and soot and dust everywhere. I don't think she actually planned for that. But she said, here is 100 pounds of CO2, 100 pounds of carbon, one-tenth, less than one-twentieth uh, of a ton. She says, every year, Everybody in this room is putting up into the air an average 65 tons of this stuff pulverized into this fine dust into the atmosphere. Think about that for a minute. Mm-hmm. Then think about how much your companies are putting up in the air every year, and you get an idea for what carbon is doing to our planet. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a really powerful way to understand it. That is a really powerful way to understand it. I was just thinking, I wonder if people got, you know, you can take the charcoal and just kind of rub it on your <laughs> rub it on your arm and make little tattoos. I'm sure she didn't plan for it to be uh, dirty, but that is... Right, well, she wears black suits. That's her trademark <laughs> exactly. anyway, so she, she walked out unscathed. That's funny. That is a really smart way of showing it. I think that that's, you know, because it, it confuses people. They're like, well, I don't know. I don't understand what my car mm-hmm. is doing and my actions are doing. So that, that's great. So the sustainability office at, at, at Alcatel-Lucent was started by you. Is that? Yes, it was. Yes, so it was. 
talk about that. I mean, you, you walked in there and you said this, this is, or you didn't walk in there and say, you know, you were obviously probably hired to do this, but, but you walked in and had a very, very um, clear vision of how you wanted to, to um, run this office. How was that process? Um, it, it, I, I think part of it was right place, right time. I had worked for the company for eight years prior uh, to my starting the sustainability office in the role of uh, a product manager for one of our optical switching products. And I, I really uh, I, I enjoyed the jo- job. I had a great team, and I was able to, to be fairly successful. But but really wanted felt that I, I had more to give to the company rather than being a product manager. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I knew that there was something to the sustainability thing that my company wasn't doing that we could really benefit from. I company's been very good to me and I thought that the best way I could be be good back to it was to to see if I could do something more than than like I say manage one one product so I, I did go back to Presidio grad school which uh, is located in San Francisco they really focus a hundred percent on making the business case for sustainability they're essentially they're starting uh, educational pitch besides besides having lots of charcoal in the room is essentially <laughs> believe in climate change or don't it doesn't matter right. but you better understand this the best route to rebuilding our economy our cities and jobs is doing precisely what you would do if you were scared to death of climate change mm-hmm. and I that really resonated with me because our company uh, had been having some struggles financially and and what had some high costs, and I thought, really, this is a nice opportunity for me to merge something I'm passionate about, which is the environment, with something I'm good at, which is business. Mm-hmm. And the intersection of those two things happens to be called sustainable management. Mm-hmm. So while it was uh, after I'd finished the program, my my project there was how to start an office of sustainability at a Fortune 500 company, and I took just what a I small task. And, <laughs> just a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but I had the best minds in 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 on the on the uh, planet here, really helping me make my business case. Mm -hmm. And I ultimately got a a seat in front of the chief operating officer and uh, spoke with him about it. He was a a Belgian guy and was speaking with him. And he he looked up and he said, well, where's your 100-day plan? And I I said, pardon me? Mm -hmm. Your 100-day plan? You're already behind. So I just I said, well, does that mean I have the job? He said, well, of course. Now you need a 100-day plan. You're already behind. So, so that was a, it was a baptism by fire, but it was really great that, that he had the foresight to, to say, this is something we want to invest in. You need to get some staff. You need to hire some people, and we need to do more. And, uh, and that's, been, that's been the way we've, been able, we've managed this office, always trying to do more. Mm-hmm. And how, how many are there in the, in the office now? I have, I have six people. I have two carbon footprint professionals um, uh, based here in the U.S. I have three sustainability managers. One uh, covers North and South America. I have one in uh, Antwerp and one in Shanghai. And then I have a, sort of a sustainability NGO and industry association outreach professional who uh, who is also in Antwerp. We have a fairly large location uh, in Antwerp, mm-hmm. uh, Belgium. Mm-hmm. Wow. Cool. Um, all right. Well, let's let's move on a little bit from from Alcatel Lucent specifically, because you really have created and developed yourself as a thought leader in the sustainability field. And I know that firsthand because I've gone to a number of your events, which we'll talk about later. Mm-hmm. Um, one one um, one one topic you like to speak about is innovation and as it relates to the low carbon economy. Let's talk about this and and then maybe segue into smart cities. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on these two topics. Sure, sure. So, so uh, smart cities is, is, is something that uh, I've become fairly passionate about. But, but let's let's take innovation first, as you suggest. 
the very definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And <sighs> mm-hmm. as we grow uh, as, as, a, as, a, as a, a world with 3 billion more people uh, being on the planet over the next 40 years, the sustainability is, is useful and it helps you take a longer-term view. We're, we're not measured quarter by quarter, though we are, we are looked at annually in terms of what your carbon footprint is doing, but, but that's even a little bit longer than quarter by quarter. So if you take the long view and look over 40 years, um, it helps by looking back first and look at where the technology was just 10 years ago compared to where it is today. The pace of change is unparalleled. We are inventing and adapting and mainstreaming technology faster than ever before. Some of it is for its own sake, entertainment-based, but, but really some of it uh, in terms of what happens behind the scenes in terms of things like optical switching and mobile, tele- uh, mobile telephones. Everybody talks about 3G network and 4G network. Most people just intuitively say, I want the higher number. I want 4G. That must be better than 3G. Right. But the technology that goes behind that is really, really mind-blowing. It's not an improvement of one time. It's an improvement of 50 or 60 times. And there's some really high tech that goes behind that. And that high tech can really change the way people work. I met with a consultant the other day who came and he pulled his iPad out and he said, you know, I finally got to the place where this is my only computer. Mm. I don't need another computer. I have a PC at home, my own Mac. I can tunnel into it. I can make my own, uh, make my own applications and PowerPoints and Excels, but I only travel in iPad. And I just thought that, that was great, not because it's maybe a Mac and it's cool technology, but the fact that he's dematerialized. He hasn't got a, you know, an iPhone, an iPod, an iMac, a MacBook. He hasn't got four or five devices. He's got one device he travels with. And it carries, you know, carries everything. And, yeah. and I think that dematerialization is, is one, of the, one of the benefits of technology. And if you multiply that forward to what you can do on a global basis uh, in terms of specifically a, a, a resource-constrained, high-carbon world, I think the possibilities of technology are pretty limitless there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, make, it's good to put it in context. And, and then when you think about a smart city, for instance, uh, you know, I, that it's incorporating it, obviously, at the macro level. Let's talk about smart cities. Now, when I think of a smart city, I think of you know, just the flash, you know, fast forward to 2050 or whatever, and high-speed trains kind of crisscrossing cities and, and, and um, you know, transportation is completely seamless um, within these the confines of the city. Talk a little bit more about what you envision a, a smart city to be. Sure. So a smart city, I mean, the word, people talk about the word smart, you know, smart city, smart economy, smart governance, smart mobility. Uh, but, but really, it's still a lot of the same things that you receive as services today. So city administration, uh, public safety, uh, education, healthcare, real estate, transportation of people and goods, even utilities. So, so smart cities aren't going to be sort of Jetson-like where, where everything <laughs> happens you know, on a, on a touch screen, but you could envision something where in an apartment building there may be a fire and uh, the, the, the sensors automatically alert the fire department. The sensors that are in the city will then automatically turn all 
all the lights, uh, the traffic lights for the fire engines green and all the cross traffic's red. And within the building, we'll light the safest exit route based on where the sensors say the fire, fire is. So automatically, people are up, out safely, and the fire engines are on their way safely. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's sort of a vision of a smart city in the future. But, but there are a few, few characteristics of, of the smart cities that in some of the research that I've seen and, and done, uh, it, it really comes down to the three things again. And I, I like boiling things down to three things because, like I said, I can only remember three at once. And I can and only two, so that's perfect. <laughs> it's the three, the three pillars of smart cities, the three Ts, the technology, talent, and tolerance. And with the technology piece, that's what we've been talking about here. The technology and the sensors, the infrastructures and the telecommunications and Wi-Fi networks to make things work. Mm-hmm. Then there's the talent piece. Uh, there's a, a, a renewal in urbanization. I mean, just look at in, in the greater Boston area, how 20 years ago, a place like Davis Square in Somerville was, was a place that nobody really wanted to go. I seem to remember even songs on the local radio making fun of it. <laughs> now, good luck trying to find a seat in a local cafe. Yeah. Uh, so it really pulls talent in. But then there's tolerance. And, and I don't mean uh, religious or, or, or ethnic tolerance. It's around tolerance for delays and tolerance for for services. People are going to want good services delivered quickly and seamlessly, um, and they're going to move to places that have a better uh, that, that have a better infrastructure. So the tolerance for being in cities that have old infrastructures is, is somewhat somewhat reduced. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think some of the issues you, you're going to see that people are going to want, which will be tied into this T, this tolerance piece, are things like ubiquitous technology, your Wi-Fi just works, real-time af- traffic info, the days of somebody saying, gee, sorry, I'm late, I got caught in traffic, will we'll We'll get weird looks. Really? You get caught in traffic? Why don't you use your smart traffic app and go Mm. around it? Mm. But then you've got to have reliability baked in. It's always going to work. Um, Self-service capability. I don't want to be on hold. I don't really have to pull down a website. I want this just, I want to be able to do this on my own. Um, There's going to be, there's going to be security and privacy uh, issues. So you're always talking about, uh, you know, uh, geez, this website I shop at just got hacked. We may, somebody may have taken your personal credit card information. There's not going to be tolerance for that. Uh, And then a mass market appeal, but personalized services as well. People are going to want to say, uh, this feels like my smart city. This is Rich's smart city. Mm -hmm. I live here, and it gives me just the right amount of services that I want and need now. I have school-aged children. I know when the city council is meeting. I can see it broadcast real-time into my living room. I can interact with them. so it's really got a personalized basis, self-service, self-service with privacy and security, and will really help me uh, make me want to stay in that city. The cities that do this well are really going to attract the best talent, and they, they will tend to have, have the best technology, too. Mm-hmm. What, what are these? They, they exist already in some respects. What, what, are some, what would you say are some of the U.S. cities that might fit the, this, this definition, at least in part? I, I, I think, uh, you know, in, in some ways, uh, cities of, in Massachusetts, Cambridge and Somerville, uh, they, they have a sort of a citywide 311. Uh, Somerville has a 311 program. You just call and it goes right to City Hall and it'll be routed right to the to the right number. You can report streetlights out. Um, you, you can go on uh, in the city of Cambridge. You go to the, their websites. You can uh, you can complain about traffic signals being being uh, set up incorrectly and they'll actually send someone out and, and do a traffic study and, and do something about it. There's a local community policing and it'll, it'll 
connect you to the local officers that patrol your neighborhood and understand what your what your issues are. Um, I, I think um, Austin, Texas, is another good example of of a really great sort of a. a, a it, it, Governance-based infrastructure, really starting with with forward-looking government uh, government activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, San Francisco, of course, um, and, and San Francisco has piloted sort of a citywide Wi-Fi. They haven't really got the funds to build the whole thing out, but really in the core of downtown, mm-hmm. it's a free city Wi-Fi. You can pretty much uh, connect anywhere, anytime. Uh, you don't have to worry about: Am I in the Starbucks? Am I in a different place? Do I have to pay five dollars an hour, or is it free? Mm-hmm. It's, it's Wi-Fi and, and funded by the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but then if you look outside of this country, you know. Places like uh, plant, planet, uh, planet IT. Uh, it, it's a planned IT-centric city in, in Brazil that's really being built around the concept of smart city. And, and then Songdo, South Korea, uh, they have essentially something like 20,000 telepresence systems, uh, which are sort of this real-time video conferencing ability to, to help uh, you know meld everything from municipal systems like education and healthcare and transportation and hospitality into one common network. Think about that that fire and fire truck example I used mm-hmm. at the very beginning. They're really trying to do that. But, but I, I think going forward, if you look at, here's an interesting statistic. Over the next 40 years, the country of China will build an infrastructure equivalent to that of the entire United States. Mm. Now think about that for a sec. Wow. Every building, bridge, rail, tunnel, um, house that exists in the United States will be built in scale in China over the next 40 years. We've been we've been building stuff here for a couple of hundred years. Wow. Um, uh, so so think about that. There's a there's a right way to do it, and there's a wrong way to do it, and the right way to do it is smart. Right. Right. I've often used the example of a bridge. Uh, I happen to be on a panel at the Business for Environment conference in London last year, and I don't know how this happened, but I was on a panel with uh, a representative from Rio Tinto and uh, Skanska Construction. These are two really big construction and natural resource type type companies, and mm-hmm. they were talking about real infrastructure and the pro- the problem, what they call the, the 9 billion problem, 9 billion people in 2050 on this earth. And they were talking about bridges and tunnels and railways and cities. And, and it came to me, I said, you know, if I could use maybe a different example of a different kind of bridge, a digital bridge, when you build a concrete bridge and your population doubles, what happens? That bridge becomes a choke point for traffic. Just think of places that you may commute to on a daily basis, and there's always a chokehold of traffic on this road. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's consider a digital bridge. Uh, a real bridge facilitates commerce. It lets people get people and goods get from one place to another. Mm-hmm. A digital bridge, meaning maybe a, a single strand of fiber optic cable, which connects routers and switches and hubs and all sorts of technology gear, also helps people get virtually from one place to another, helps facilitate the flow of goods and services one place to another. And if that piece of fiber gets filled up, all that the infrastructure company has to do behind it, say a Verizon or an AT&T or someone else, all they have to do is add another piece of equipment at the ends of the fiber, right. and they've doubled the traffic capacity. No traffic jams. Huh. That digital bridge is going to enable far more com- commerce over its lifetime than a concrete and steel bridge. So I really think that the analogy of a bridge when thinking about smart cities is, is a really relevant one in that you're talking about the facilitation of commerce and the quality of people's lives over a digital infrastructure. Right. I love that. All right. So we only have a couple minutes. Um, so I want to ask you, I wanted you to have a little bit of an opportunity to talk about um, BASG, Boston Area Sustainability Group, and, as well as your course that you're teaching at Harvard. Okay. 
Uh, well, well, great, thanks. Um, uh, so Boston Area Sustainability Group is, is something that I founded with with uh, Glenn Grant, who's the CEO of G2 Technology Group in Boston. Please check them out. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when I had come back to Boston from San Francisco for my education in, in sustainability, what I really loved about being in San Francisco in addition to the fact that it didn't snow there, um, was was uh, there was something sustainability related every night. I could go out to uh, you know hear some hear a guest lecture or just a just even a gathering of like-minded people meeting at a local at a local uh, restaurant uh, to talk about green issues of the day. I couldn't wait to find my people, if you will, back here in Boston. And aside from one small group, the, uh, there really wasn't anything that had the mix of of you know education, networking, and fun that. That, that I wanted to have. So I decided, well, why wait? Why don't I try it? And, uh, you know, just using the social media, LinkedIn and uh, Facebook and Twitter and everything else I could think of, um, I, I decided to found the Boston Area Sustainability Group. And we meet about every six weeks because it's uh, my group. I can meet based on my schedule and my speakers, <laughs> my guest speaker's schedule. Um, our next one is coming up uh, next month in, in Boston. Yep. And we always have what I'll call a sustainability Illuminati, someone who's really uh, a name in their field. So we've had, you know, Catherine Winkler from EMC. We'll have Cynthia Curtis from Computer Associates. We've had Dr. Bob Pajasic from Harvard. We've had a number of really, Mitch Tyson, we have really great speakers. They come in, it's a half an hour informal discussion about who they are, what they do, and their take on sustainability. And there's always between 30 and 50 people in the room and there's really some great interaction and networking. A lot of people have told me they've met people that have been offered jobs. Subsequently, I think we're up to four or five, four or five jobs being uh, generated as a result of, of connections made at, uh, at BASG meetings. Yeah. It's um, you can check it out at BASG.org. Uh, it's always free. Yep. Uh, it's about, like say, every six or eight weeks, depending on, on schedules. And the next one's coming up February 21st, the House of Blues in Boston. And uh, I would encourage listeners to check it out. I would definitely encourage listeners to check it out. I met you. What, did I meet you there, I guess? We just, I think so. we, Yeah, we connected. Yeah. But I um, I have met some amazing people there. And it's a, it's at the foundation room at the House of Blues. It's still going to be there this year. Is that correct? Or? That's right. Okay. That's right. It's a really fun venue. And, um, you know, it's just a... a it's that's an experience in itself, just going there. And it, it is, and it, they're nice enough to give us that space for free. Yeah, it's fantastic, and I've met some amazing people, and, and you bring really great guests, and and you you don't necessarily have to be in the sustainability field; you may just be interested in it, you know. And so you get people from, you know, all ages, and I, I just think it's a wonderful group. Um, unfortunately, we have very little time, but can you give us like your thirty-second Harvard? Extension course description. Sure, for sure. You. So uh, I've recently been named to uh, adjunct faculty at Harvard University. And I'm teaching a course there, uh, which is available online, called Planning for Carbon Neutrality E116. Okay. And uh, if any listeners listeners are interested, the first course is the first class is this week, so there's still time to sign up Ooh. and uh, and learn how to conduct a carbon footprint. So uh, uh, sign up, and I'll, be, I'll look forward to seeing you in class. Okay, that's great. I'm glad that we got that in because it's starting next week. So okay, terrific. Absolutely. Thank you, Rich. I really appreciate you coming on. I'm glad we finally made this work with our schedules and uh it's i've been wanting to get you on for a while and your story is a really good one so i appreciate it pleasure and thank you for the opportunity okay have a good day you too okay Bye. bye We are Nature of Business. Nature of Business is brought to you by Nashua Better Buildings, a local division of New Hampshire Better Buildings. Nashua Better Buildings educates and works with homeowners and businesses to save energy, make their place more comfortable, and improve air quality. For more information, log on to NashuaBetterBuildings.com. The proceeding has been Nature of Business with Chrissy Coughlin in association with GreenBiz.com. 